This is an ABC podcast. So, Norman, welcome back. We've had a week off partly because of Easter and partly because you were gallivanting around the globe. And I just wanted to ask you a question. Did you pick up any souvenirs? Well, I bought a few clothes when I was aware, mm-hmm. but the main souvenir I picked up was Omicron. <laughs> the worst. I assume it was Omicron, yeah. The dumbest souvenir. I arrived in Washington to a household replete with COVID. I was the only adult left standing. <laughs> For a while. So how are you feeling? I feel, I feel okay. I can feel a few after effects. I'm decidedly negative, but the um, interesting, they've got a sort of second week dip. But otherwise, I'm in pretty good shape. I certainly wouldn't want to be unvaccinated and get this disease, I can tell you. Well, let's do a podcast all about it. Uh, this is, of course, CoronaCast. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. I'm now the COVID-free physician and journalist, Dr Norman Swan. It's Wednesday, the 27th of April, 2022. I think it was in about November last year. It was about the time we were thinking we were doing pretty well against this coronavirus thing and wondering whether we needed to keep doing Coronacast in 2022. And then we heard about this new variant, Omicron. Uh, It had heaps of mutations. It was more transmissible. It was more able to evade our vaccines. And since then, it's become the dominant variant in a lot of the world. But since that initial Omicron detection and uh, description that we we had back then, there's been sub-variants that have kept popping up. And we've talked a bit about some of them. We've talked about BA1 and BA2. We talked a couple of weeks ago about BA3, but um, it just keeps on changing. And so now there's a new sub-variant, BA4, that I think we should talk about today because it's the same cycle. Every time there's a new sub-variant, it's described and there's this sort of barrage of questions, the same questions every time. What is it? Is it more dangerous? Is it more vaccine evasive? What do we know about BA4? Well, not a lot yet. We know a bit about its genetics. So there are two ways that you can get a new variant or a new form of the SARS coronavirus. One is by mutation. So the virus replicates inside your body and when it replicates, it makes mistakes in the RNA. And some of the, most of those mistakes, the vast majority, don't mean anything, don't do anything, but occasionally... One of those mistakes might mean that the virus is more immune evasive and therefore it can infect people who've been infected before or who have the vaccine. Sometimes there might be a mutation which makes it more or less virulent. But there's another way that you can um, get a new subvariant or variant of the coronavirus, and that's when it exchanges genetic material in the same person or indeed an animal. What happens is the person gets infected, let's say with BA1, and they get infected again with uh, another subvariant, maybe BA2 or BA3, and you've got two viruses existing in the body at the same time, and they're very friendly, and they exchange genetic material. And it's thought that BA4 is a recombination, a recombinant event, where you've got elements of BA1 and BA3 coming together, plus some mutations to create BA4. The, rep- the early reports are that this is not necessarily something to worry about, although the fact that it's appearing could mean that it's a bit more contagious, but it's far, far too early to say. And again, no sign yet that it's more virulent, in other words, more likely to cause serious disease. But it is an example of how this virus does change its spots on a regular and hard to predict basis. And we're still talking about the general family of Omicron. So this is not a new variant, it's a sub-variant. And I don't think it's even been called a variant of concern at this moment. People are just watching what's happening to it. The real issue is going to be when you get 
a frame shift, if you like, a really big jump in the coronavirus. So it's not related to Omicron at all. So, so far for the last two or three months, it's all been versions of the Omicron family, even this one. But the real concern is what might happen if you get an event which gives you an entirely new version of the coronavirus in the same way as Omicron was a new version, not related really to Delta at all. There's got to be a ceiling to how often or how much this virus can change or just how much worse it could get, though. Like, are we ever going to see an even keel with a, a relatively stable virus? Well, it depends on how broad spectrum the immunity that we've got from either previous COVID infections or vaccines uh, help us through here. Influenza doesn't stop changing year by year. It doesn't stop being a virus that can turn into a pandemic virus, particularly when it goes into an animal and comes out of an animal and infects humans and, and spreads through humans. That's when you get a pandemic version of the influenza virus. So influenza doesn't stop that. And we keep on having to renew our influenza vaccines each year to cope with those, what this, these what are called antigenic changes in the virus. So it's likely that the COVID-19 virus will remain the same. And the pattern we might get into, which is that, a bit like at the moment, yeah, we get BA4, yawn, 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 <laughs> but then something serious comes along which we really need to be concerned about. And the issue then will be how rapidly we can adapt the vaccines and whether the second generation vaccines that are going to come along give you a broader set of immune responses that can cope with new variants when they arise. But the pot of gold at the end of this rainbow is actually a vaccine that's universal in a sense against all forms of the SARS coronavirus that might emerge now and in the future. And we talk a lot about the acute phase of this illness, the, the severe disease and the subsequent things that can happen in the shortish term. And it's a little harder to tie to the coronavirus is other sort of strange non-respiratory sequelae, like uh, diseases or, or syndromes that can happen after an infection. And one of the things that's caught a bit of attention in kids this last few weeks is a type of hepatitis, a, a liver infection that doesn't seem to be linked to any of the hepatitis viruses that we've known and recognised over the past few decades, but they're thinking it's actually linked to COVID. Well, they're wondering whether it is. There's, there's not a lot of evidence yet. So it makes sense that it's linked to COVID. So just a little bit of information of this the, and we'll put a link to the World Health Organization's recent report and also quite a good story that was in the ABC, on the ABC Digital on this as well. So this is acute hepatitis in children. It's been reported from really one month up to about 16 years of age. As of last week, there were about 170 cases worldwide, some of which were really quite severe, but 10% required a liver transplant. And I think one child died. The one child died may have had other problems, so it's just not absolutely clear. And there are several countries in the world. The UK has reported the most, Spain, Israel, USA, Denmark, Ireland, Netherlands and others. I made a phone call to a senior paediatric gastroenterologist in Australia, and they're certainly talking about it in Australia, but nobody's said they've seen one yet. So this is serious. It's rare. It's 170 kids in a population of 9 billion, although there are likely to be hidden cases or milder cases that are not being recognised. But it's something that needs to be looked at. And as you say, they've tested 
all sorts of viruses here to see whether or not it's causing it. It's not the normal set of uh, hepatitis viruses. They've looked at HIV. The one virus that they're wondering about is called adenovirus. It's a type of common cold. Yes. And there has been a resurgence of adenovirus around the world after it being in very low numbers during the COVID-19 pandemic. And there's been a surge of adenovirus. And some are wondering whether it's adenovirus causing this. Some are wondering whether it's actually adenovirus with coronavirus. So it's adenovirus plus COVID or adenovirus or COVID plus a toxin in the environment not recognised. It's not the vaccine. I think the majority of children who've got this have been in age groups where they're not eligible for the for the vaccine. So it's not a vaccine side effect. So it's, it's still a bit of a mystery as to what is causing this this hepatitis and the likelihood is that it, we will see it in Australia. And you'd have to say the likelihood is that it's got some sort of relationship to COVID because COVID does produce an inflammation. And in India last year, they did report quite serious liver disease post-COVID in children. And some children died of that in, in India. So it's well known that children rarely can get an inflammatory disorder which can involve the liver. But th this is not necessarily that situation. So we don't know for sure if it's COVID or not, but yeah, watch this space. And even though it's quite scary, it's pretty rare. Yes. And the, there was a, an international meeting on this a few days ago, and they put the data on the table that they've got to date, and there's just no red light uh, showing apart from maybe adenovirus. But even adenovirus is not that convincing and maybe it's two things going on at the same time, but just don't know yet. Well, we've still got questions coming in from our audience, Norman, and one from Sarah is actually kind of speaking to this general anxiety that we can have around this pandemic of just hearing this scary news about things like this and, and other side effects from COVID and just not knowing what level of precautions to take against it. So Sarah says she's been boosted, she's followed medical advice, always wears an N95, quit her job as a teacher, which she loved, and has not left her house for over six months except to get boosted, and is just feeling so depressed by the hopelessness of her situation, watching the world as it's mutating the virus and getting even further ahead of our vaccines. And the question from Sarah is, is there any realistic hope that we're ever going to be able to return to normal life? Am I going to be housebound for the next decade just to avoid a COVID-related death? I think what Sarah's story illustrates is true of many people, which is that they're generally anxious about the situation, don't want to expose themselves, don't want to expose others. And what they can get into is a, a situation really which is of quite a serious anxiety disorder quite phobic, call it agoraphobia or you call it whatever you like. It doesn't really matter what the label is. And when you are generally anxious about going out, about meeting people and that you're confined to your home, then you do need to get treatment for it from a psychologist. And there are well-recognized treatments that do work incredibly well with anxiety disorders such as this where you are phobic in a sense. And um, you really need to get your GP to refer you on. Now, there are some people who have that fear because they're immunodeficient. But I think also some anxiety disorder therapy for you as well could help that situation and just make you less distressed, even though there's an obvious reason for that anxiety. I'm not saying there's not an obvious reason for people who don't have immune deficiency, but I think that you do not sit on an anxiety disorder such as this, which is keeping you at home uh, when there are treatments which can help. 
and speaking of treatments which can, which can help, we're so much better at treating COVID now than we were two years ago. There are treatments that are really effective in saving lives. The amount of worry needs to be proportionate to the risk and the risk is lower than it used to be that you were going to die from this disease. That's right. The availability of treatments are indeed at the moment a game changer. And a question from Andy saying, are super spreader events still occurring? Can or should we still be tracking them? Super spreader events still do occur. And in fact, uh, there was one in Washington about three weeks ago at a journalist's dinner called The Gridiron. And I think at least 10% of the people at that dinner got infected, including, I think, the the Attorney General of the United States. So should we still be tracking them? Tracking them is easier said than done when you've got so many cases each day which overwhelm contact tracing. But I think we need to be very careful about environments which we know only too well spread the coronavirus. And we should not be having big events with lots of people in poorly ventilated environments. So we've really got to attend to ventilation, circulation of air moving forward. Well, that's all the questions I've got for you today. But a reminder that you, dear listener, can uh, submit a question anytime by going to abc.net.au slash coronacast. And we'll be back in your feed on Wednesday next week. See you then.